This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Phases chapter 5. And we'll begin reading from verse 25. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, For no one ever hateth his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. There are quite a number of metaphors that are used in the Bible to describe the relationship between Christ and his church. He is the head, we are his body. He is the shepherd, we are his sheep. He is the Lord, We are his servants. We are living stones. He is the chief cornerstone. And there are more. However, without doubt, I think that the most personal, the most intimate, the loveliest of all is this right here. That we are the bride and he is the bridegroom. Right from the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the marriage supper of the Lamb, in Revelation, this imagery of bride and groom, of husband and wife, has ever been used to describe the relationship in the Old Testament between God and Israel, and in the New Testament between Christ and his church. And so this relationship is central to everything we are as believers today. So let me take you through this morning through the process of courtship and marriage in Bible days and to some degree in some lands even this day. And I'm indebted for some of the insights in this because you've got to research this. I'm indebted to uh, various writers, uh, John Freeman, for example, and Clifford Hill. Clifford Hill and his wife, Lindy, has uh, taken over 3,000 people and over 80 tours to Israel. And, uh, and so uh, they know quite a bit about these things. And so let me take you through this process. Now, I should say right at the beginning that marriage in old, early Old Testament times uh, was a very basic affair, uh, hardly without any ceremony whatsoever. But when you come into the New Testament, it's much more formal. Not anything like what it was in the Old Testament, but much more formal, but not as formal as it is with us today, particularly in our Western 
society. And so, as far as marriage was concerned in the Bible, it was the expected norm. There is no word for bachelor in Hebrew. Uh, what God said in Eden, it was not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That still held good and still holds good even today. And so Abraham, for example, Abraham's son Isaac had reached the grand old age of 40 and he's still single. And Abraham was desperate to get him a wife. And so he sent out Eliezer uh, to, among his own kinfolk, uh, to find him a wife, and found him a wife, actually. A beautiful wife, Rebecca, and brought her back. And so it was a big thing. That was the norm. However, there are exceptions to the rule. The Apostle Paul was an exception. The Apostle Paul had the gift of celibacy. And he lived a, a single and celibate life all of his life. Jeremiah was not allowed to marry. God says, you are not allowed to marry. Because that was to be a sign to his generation who had rejected God. And therefore, there was no future for them. And so that was a sign that he was not to marry. But those are some of the few exceptions. Normally, uh, they got married. Interestingly, Jesus left this earth as a bachelor, but he's coming back as a bridegroom, Hallelujah. looking for his bride. Amen. Now, marriages in Western society, we take exception to arrange marriages. But that was what it was like in Bible days and is still like in some cultures and countries today. But in our Western society and the way we were brought up, that's foreign and strange to us and we can't get our heads around it. But in some places, it's quite normal and it is accepted and it is expected to happen. Now, in the West, we automatically feel that love comes along first and when love is developed, at the end of that, then there's marriage. But in arranged marriages, it's the opposite way around. In arranged marriages, the marriage comes first, and then what flows from that is love. It takes time sometimes. Sometimes it's faster than others, but it takes time and, and tenderness and love and patience and, and, and faithfulness and all of that and, and from that initial commitment to marry then love begins to grow and to develop incidentally by the way there are fewer divorces among arranged marriages but in the Bible it was quite normal unscriptural and right so how then was marriages arranged well, usually the couple would be in their very early teens, and sometimes barely teens, very young indeed. I know that Sally and I's generation, you know, 70s, early 70s, in our generation, we tended to marry younger than the generation today. Uh, that's things change with, even within cultures. But it was the two perspective parents-in-law 
that made the arrangements. They sought out a suitable partner for their son and their daughter. And whenever they had come to an agreement, then that's when the couple found out, hey, I've got a wife for you. Hey, I've got a husband for you. That's when they found out. Now, that's foreign to us. But actually, that worked very, very well in Bible days. And could work very well even today. And so once that was arranged, once a match was made, then there was a finalization. There was a formal contract made before two witnesses, and that made it legal. Uh, that's what is called the betrothal in the Bible. Kind of like our engagement, but in the Bible, it was called betrothal, and the marriage was, at that point, called a marriage, and it was legally binding. Now, the marriage was unconsummated. That would come later. But at this moment, the match was made, everything was agreed, formal agreement was made, two witnesses was there, and the only thing could stop that now was either death or divorce. So that, you can see now how Mary and Joseph, how that when he found out that she was pregnant and he knew he wasn't the dad, then he wanted to put her away privately. He didn't want a scandal. He realized this is a big thing. So, then the father of the bride-to-be would meet again with the father of the groom-to-be and they would work out what kind of a, a dowry for this man's daughter would have to be given because he was about to lose a very useful worker within his family, somebody who could help them even in their old age if necessary. And so it was going to be a loss, so some kind of compensation had to ensue from the father of the groom-to-be to the, mother, to the father of the bride-to-be. And that would usually be a, a, a sum of money would be agreed. Now, once that happened, that, was to, that money was to be kept in trust because once they get finalized, everything in the wedding was over and they moved into home together, say, for instance, it didn't work out. Just say it didn't work out. And he left and she was left. Or say there was children and she was left with children. Then this money would be used just as a little buffer just, just so they're not destitute at that moment, that they would have something to, to fall back on. However, the father couldn't use that money, except he could invest it, and whatever interest he got on it, then he could use that, but he couldn't touch the capital. That had to be kept. And so all of that then was agreed. Paul often referred to these marriage customs in his letters about our relationship to Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now, once that diary was made, that sealed the deed. That was it. The deed was sealed. And so... Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed, not with a money agreement, 
you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so Paul in his culture could easily use these examples to make the people understand our relationship to Christ far better. Now the father of the bride-to-be has been giving uh, has a dowry for his daughter. He's got that from the father of the groom-to-be. But now he himself must give a gift to his daughter. And it could be cash, or if he was very wealthy, it could be servants, it could be land, or it could be whatever, depending on the status they had. But one of the things he would give her that would be very precious to her was what was called a little frontlet. And it would be a little row of 10 coins that she would wear on her wedding day, she would wear on her forehead. Lovely piece of jewelry. And she would keep that. That would be precious to her. That would mean more to her than the monetary value of those coins. The value of the coins wasn't the issue. It was the fact that her dad gave her that as part of her, his wedding gift to her. Now you understand, when Jesus gives the trilogy of the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, do you remember how the woman, when she lost her coin, that she frantically swept the whole house in order to find that one coin? And when she got it, she rejoiced. So that wasn't a point out of her purse. That was one of these a coin, did I say a pound? That wasn't a coin out of her purse. That was one of these coins that she wore that her father gave her as a wedding gift. So it was important to her. Then there was the betrothal. The betrothal, or we would say the engagement, only for them it was much more binding. It was a, it was a deeper, much more important thing. The betrothal lasted usually about one year. And during that year, the couple were not to see each other. They were kept apart. And so during that year, both of them had things to do in preparation for their wedding day. She would try to find out everything she could about her future husband-to-be. Now, I have to say that, generally speaking, it would be within the extended family. It might be a first cousin, by the way, in Bible days. But she would have to find out as much as she possibly could about, and she would want to. She'd want to know what he's like, what his personality's like, what his character's like. Was he a hard worker? What was he like around the home? How did he treat his parents? She wanted to know all of these things, all she could find out about him to help her when that day came. At least she would know much about him. And she would also, uh, I remember years ago, there was a thing called Bible Come to Life Exhibition, and it was held in the Marlin Parish Church years ago, and I went to it. It was wonderful. And they showed you some of these Bible customs. And one of them was that, that every girl growing up was taught how to sew. And she would sew a, a, like a square or a big patch, we would say, beautifully ornate and sew that. And she would keep that for her wedding day. And she'd fit that into her dress. 
And so she'd be busy doing all of these things. What would he be doing? Well, his primary job was preparing for his bride-to-be. So what he would do, he would build another room onto his father's house. Because when he went to get her in a year's time, he would bring her back to his father's house. So now you can see how John 14 fits in with that. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my father's house are many mansions, or some translations, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So when Jesus said that to his disciples, they they knew what he was meaning. They could see the, the illustration. Right now, you and I, as believers in Christ, we are in the betrothal stage. We are waiting for our wedding day. Hallelujah. We are waiting for our groom to come for us to where we are and take us to where he is. But, but, it was the father of the groom who decided what day the wedding was to take place. It wasn't the groom, it was the father of the groom. He decided. In Matthew 27, 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only, Jesus said. Luke 12, 40, therefore you be also ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So right now at this moment, even Jesus, the Son of God, literally does not know the hour he's coming back. The Father will tell him. The Father will show him. And so finally, one day, usually at the end of that year, the Father would turn to his Son, and he would say, Son, today is the day. Go get your bride. And that would start a whole chain reaction. The procession would begin. Now this procession, which would obviously include him, it would include family and friends and maybe neighbors. This would take place between the hours of 6 o'clock in the evening and 12 o'clock midnight. And he would have several young men as his helpers, but one of them would be called the friend of the bridegroom. That would be his official title. That would be our best man. You might have groomsmen, but you have a best man who looks after you, or at least should, gives all those speeches and things, and embarrasses the groom. But anyway, they didn't do that in those days, I hope. And so... The friend of the bridegroom, his job would be to go a little ahead of the procession and to prepare the way for the coming of the bridegroom. Who does that remind you of? John the Baptist, of course. And John the Baptist was the one who went ahead of Christ, didn't he? 
in John chapter 3, verse 25, there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. That was Jesus. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John fulfilled that position as the friend of the bridegroom, announcing that the bridegroom was coming. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so this procession then would start moving through the village or the town. And it would be a noisy affair. There would be musicians. People would be dancing. They would be shouting. There would be much joy and rejoicing. The neighbors would open their doors or their windows. Maybe they would join in because this was a big event. Everybody knew a wedding was about to take place. And so everybody was happy and rejoicing and full of fun. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful scene. Now, it was at night time. So they would have torches to see in the dark than the streetlights in those days, obviously. And so here it comes. The bride knows by now that this is the day. The guests who were invited would know by now this is the day. But none of them knew the hour. Only the father knew the hour and told the son. Was it going to be 6 o'clock? Would it be 7 or 8? Would it be 10 o'clock at night? Would it be 11 o'clock at night? Would it be the midnight hour? She didn't know. So she had to be ready. She had to prepare herself between 6 and 12, she was on guard, ready, waiting, ready, all prepared, everything done, just waiting for her bridegroom to come. We too do not know the hour of his return. So we too have got to be ready and make ourselves ready for that hour. And so then... The arrival of the groom. They've made their procession through. They're coming now to where she lives. And the friend of the bridegroom, he would begin to shout, The bridegroom is here. Go you out to meet him. Hmm. You remember Matthew 25? Remember the parable of the wise and foolish virgins? Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Because that's what they were supposed to do. These were the helpers of the, of, the, of the bride. And they were to take their lamps out into the street, shining all this 
for the bride and the groom. Right? Five of them were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So let us be like the wise virgins and have our lamps full of oil and have our wicks trimmed and ready for that great day of his coming. We know it can't be long. We see the signs every day. It's getting closer, but we just don't know the hour. Could be the midnight hour, but we've got to be ready. And so, now the bride comes out the door, and the groom awaits her, and she's veiled. And he takes her veil off. And he puts it on his shoulder. And all the guests standing says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. His government of her from now on shall be upon his shoulder. He'll protect her. He'll provide for her. He'll look after her. The government of her shall be upon his shoulder. And the government of us is upon his shoulder today. And he will provide, and he will protect, and he will love, and he will cherish, and he will bring us to his Father's house. And so as I, 9 and 6, you see it in the Christmas cards, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Then the whole procession again, led of course now by the, the groom and his bride, and all the entourage and the neighbors and the family and friends, they start to head back to the father's house, to the place that he has prepared for her. It's all ready. He's done his job. I go and prepare a place for you. And he right now is preparing a place for us where we will be with him forever. Amen? Amen. And so... They ride back at the father's house and a great banquet is spread. Marriage supper awaits them. Psalm of Psalm 2 and 4 
He brought me into his banqueting house and his banner over me is his love. Some people say, particularly people who don't know Christ, there's no interest in God or the things of God. I wouldn't go to heaven, this boring place. I'd rather go to hell, more excitement there. What utter nonsense. Hell is a place of unending torment. Heaven is a place of unending joy Hallelujah. and gladness Amen. and no sickness and no disease, Glory. no tears, no crying. People were expected to dress for the occasion as much as their means would allow. They want to look their best. Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable that a rich man who had a great feast invited people to come, and they didn't come. So he said, go out in the highways and byways and invite everybody you meet and bring them in to my house. I prepared a great meal. And so they did that. And when the day came, and the, the householder came in, and everybody was sitting, and he looks around, and he sees a man without a wedding garment. He says, where's your wedding garment? Why did you not get a garment on for this occasion? And he was speechless. The man said, throw him out into utter darkness, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. By the way, let me just throw this in as an aside. Jesus, it's, in spite of what modern day preachers will tell you, Jesus preached more about hell than he did about heaven because he didn't want people to go there. And so, here they are. The banquet's about to begin. But before that, something a little formal. A blessing will be said over the couple. Prayers will be made for them, for their new life together. Just as we would do if a couple got married here, and many has. We pray God's blessing over them that God would guide them and guard them and help them and prosper them and favor them. And it was no different then. A legal contract would be drawn up and signed. And basically, that's about it. Formalities are over. Feasting would begin. Normally, it would last up to a week, depending on, I suppose, the ability of the household and wouldn't it be a terrible thing that during that week if they ran out of food and they ran out of drink? And that's what was happening at the marriage feast in Cain of Galilee. The wine had run out. And what a shame for the bridegroom. How embarrassing would that be 
He's just starting out his first day. And here's a great big failure. <coughs> but Jesus steps in. The very first miracle he ever did was to save the embarrassment of that young bridegroom. That's how much he cares about us as individuals. And he turned that water into wine. And it was the best wine. This beginning of miracles to Jesus of Nazareth, king of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory. What a way to show your glory. <laughs> he didn't raise the dead in his first miracle. He didn't walk on water in the first miracle. He just met a need of a young couple starting out in their married life. So young couples, if you starting out in your married life, Jesus is concerned about every need you've got. And he wants to bless you and help you in that. Now I need to point something else out to you because if you just happen to come upon it and read it, you may be a little confused. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Hmm. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of the God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, that's those who will not stand up for Jesus Christ. The cowardly, who will not take their stand and let me tell you, the days we're living in, we're going to be faced and forced to take our stand. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Now note this, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And it goes on and then to describe the New Jerusalem, which I'm not going to describe. You can read it for yourself. I've done that in the past. Marvelous. Amazing. 
unimaginable almost. Incredible size and the architecture and the colors, what it's made of, it just blew your mind completely. But notice what the angel said, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. What did he show? The new Jerusalem. He said, now hold on a minute, David. All morning in this message, you've been telling us that we are the bride of Christ. That's right. Now you're saying the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. That's also right. But is that not contradictory? On the surface it would seem, but it isn't. Actually, it's complementary. Let me explain. Revelation 17 and 18. A little bit of end of 16, actually, too. It talks about two Babylons. And it talks about the fall of Babylon. Mystery Babylon. Babylon the Great. And I haven't time this morning to go into this in any great depths because I'd have to go right back to Nimrod way back in Genesis 10 and 11 to explain about Babylonianism. It's a whole message on its own. But sufficient to say this. These two Babylons, one speaks of an ecclesiastical Babylon, a worldwide, one world religion, full of compromise, full of the opposite of what this book teaches, but huge, something that is mysterious. That's one Babylon. The other Babylon that's mentioned is a political, commercial block. Huge, massive. And we see today nations wanting into blocks, like the European Union block, because the idea is you have more power, more influence, can trade bigger. So the whole row going on today about the European Union and Britain coming out of it, which I'll not bore you with. I'm sure you're sick so and tired of hearing about it. But under the rule of Antichrist, he will use this word religion. He will use it for the influence that it will have, and it's very powerful and it's very rich, the Bible tells us. So he will use that for a while. In the end, he will destroy it. But at the beginning, he will use it. And the power of the commercial federations, he'll use that too. In fact, nobody will be able to buy or sell unless they receive his mark. Boy, that's a whole other story which I just I haven't time to go into today. I have to leave that hanging there. But here's my point. That Babylonish city, because it talks about a city called Babylon here, that will be governed by an ecclesiastical influence and a commercial influence together. And it'll be mighty. It'll influence the whole world. 
but it will fall. It says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The two, the religious, the commercial, is fallen. By the way, whenever the Twin Towers fell a few years ago, people read into that and thought, that's the Twin Towers, but it's not to do with the Twin Towers. Nothing. It's talking about these two systems. In a city, a great city. Now, here's the point. The people and the system became so identified with the city that the city and the people became as one. I've, I've been fortunate over the years to visit many of the great cities of the world. And if you said to me, David, what is Hong Kong like? And if I was to say to you, oh, Hong Kong, it's an amazing city. It's got these tall, huge skyscrapers. It's got a bay with ferries. The streets are bustling. Big commercial side, and it was just, and at night, when it's lit up at night, it's just mind-boggling to see it. It's, what, a, what, a, what a view it is at night. So if I told you that, you'd be thinking of architecture, you'd be thinking of maybe parks and maybe lakes and maybe the bay and the ferries, you'd be thinking of all that. But if I said to you, if you said, well, what, about, what about Hong Kong? What do you think about that, David? If I said to you, it's a wicked city. You wouldn't be thinking of skyscrapers and ferries and parks. You'd be thinking of the Chinese mafia, the triad gangs. You'd be thinking of the, the prostitution rings, the drug cartels. You'd be thinking of the wickedness of the people. Because if I said it's a wicked city, you would immediately put the two together in your mind. You said the city's wicked. But if I said to you, Dublin is a beautiful city. If you've ever been to Dublin, you'd probably agree. It's got all that old Georgian architecture from when Britain ruled. It's got that broad sweep of O'Connell Street going down to the Liffey. It's got St. Stephen's Green, which is a beautiful park with a lake, and you can walk around it, and there's seats to sit on. It's beautiful. But if I just said to you, oh, Dublin's a friendly city, you wouldn't be thinking of the Connell Street and St. Stephen's. You'd be thinking of the people. The people. That's what you'd be thinking about. So the people in the city are so identified together as one. And the New Jerusalem is the house, is the room, is the mansion that Jesus is preparing for us. That's where we're going to live forever. Have you got that? That's where we're going to be. And it's huge. And it's beautiful. And the people and it will be wonderful. And we will identify with that. And he will identify us with that. Because that's ours forever. And we will be one with that. That's why it's also called the Bride of the Lamb. The beautiful city. And so, here we are right now. And we are in the preparation stage. The getting ready stage. We feel the day is fast approaching. We're not sure. We don't know yet what hour it's going to be. But soon... The call will go out. 
Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. And there'll be a blast of the trumpet. And the Lord will come in the air. And we will rise up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You say, David, you must believe in the rapture. Absolutely. Unashamedly, unapologetically. And if you don't, I'm sorry. We'll have to agree to disagree. You're too late to try to change my mind. Because one day, we will go up to be with him to that place that he has prepared for us, his bride. Amen. In Hebrews 9, it says, Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So are you looking for him? Because he's looking for you and he's coming for you. So you better be ready for him, for his coming. So let's do everything we can. What can we do? We can go into this book and we can find out everything we possibly can about the Lord Jesus who's coming for us. Let's read it continually. Let's read the New Testament over and over and find out. Let's, through our prayers, through our devotions, through our praise, let's find out all we can about the Master who's coming for his bride. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much. We do not deserve one iota of your mercy and grace and love. There is nothing we can boast of of ourselves, but you love us nonetheless. And we thank you for that. And we bless you that you're getting us ready and you're getting our home ready. And one day you will come for each of us. So whether you come or whether you call, we must be ready for that moment. Help us to do that. So, Lord, we will be with you forever and forever and forever in that wonderful place that you are preparing even right now. So we give you thanks and we praise you for who you are and for the great price that you paid to give us that entrance into that holy place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.